This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Jonah chapter 3. Uh, You will recall, uh, I'm sure, from our study of Jonah, that in chapter 1 we were introduced to this prophet of the Lord. This prophet who fled from the presence of the Lord, only to be thrown into the sea of God's judgment. In chapter 2, we read Jonah's prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God, as Jonah reminded us that salvation belongs to the Lord. And now, we turn our attention this morning to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, where we will read of a repentant prophet and a repenting people and a relenting God. Hear God's word from Jonah 3 this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We're going to consider these verses uh, in chapter 3 this morning in three sections. And so if you're taking notes, these will be the three sections of the sermon. First, in verses 1 to 4, we will see repentant Jonah. Repentant Jonah. God's mercy results in Jonah's repentant obedience to God's word. Secondly, in verses 5 through 9, we see repenting Nineveh. Repenting Nineveh. God's word by God's spirit accomplishes God's work of repentance and faith in the Ninevites. And lastly, in verse 10, we see a relenting God. A relenting God. God's mercy is truly greater than our sin. We have a repentant Nona, Jonah, not Nona, Jonah. Repentant Jonah, a repenting Nineveh, a relenting God. Repentant Jonah, repenting Nineveh, relenting God. Let's take a moment now and let's pray. Let's ask God to be with us as we consider his word today. Father, we come to your word in great need. We're in great need of your mercy. We're in great need of your grace. We're in great need of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and to encourage our hearts We're in great need of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're thankful 
We're thankful for the Lord Jesus, the Word made flesh. And we come to Him this morning with hearts needing Him to lead us and guide us in the way that we should go. We come to Your Word wanting to behold wonderful things in Your Word. And so we pray that You would speak, O Lord, for Your people are listening. Make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first, in verses 1 to 4, verses 1 to 4, we are reintroduced to God's prophet Jonah. It's like now, now we're introduced to the repentant Jonah. In chapter 1, we were introduced to this prophet of God in his proud estate as he sought to flee from the very presence of God. The word of the Lord had come to Jonah and commanded him to go to Nineveh to preach to that great city in chapter 1. And there we read that Jonah arose, and he fled away headlong in the opposite direction of God's word. He did not humbly obey God's command, but instead he proudly disobeyed in the other direction. Chapter 1, Jonah ran headlong in the opposite direction of God's command. In chapter 2, we were introduced to the humble Jonah. The humble Jonah, in his proud disobedience, God graciously intervened. And Jonah found himself in the belly of a great fish, humbled under the hand of a gracious and a mighty God. Jonah prayed from the belly of that great fish a prayer of thanksgiving to God, psalm after psalm coming from his lips. And in God's great kindness, that great fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. And it's here, in chapter 3, that we come upon this Jonah, once proud, now humbled, now repentant. Chapter chapter 3, verse 1, we are introduced to the repentant Jonah when we read, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You know, if you're a member of University Park Baptist Church, you have affirmed that we believe repentance is a sacred duty and an inseparable inseparable grace of God that is wrought in our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's that's exactly what we see here in these verses before us in chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, Jonah declares salvation belongs to the Lord And in verse 1 of chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What a grace of God that he would send his word to Jonah a second time. It was enough that the word of the Lord came to Jonah at all the first time. How miraculous that God would save Jonah in his rebellion using that fish. But what grace, what grace that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And so loved one. Jonah, you need to remember, was a prophet of the Lord. He wasn't a Ninevite. He wasn't an enemy of the Lord. He was a prophet of the Lord, a leader in God's covenant people. And yet, loved one, the depth of his rebellion drove him away from the Lord, if only for a season, because God's rich mercy and his rich grace saved Jonah from his rebellion. And so, loved one, I wonder, I wonder how merciful and gracious you Thank God is to you. How gracious and merciful is God truly? Do you believe that you must hold yourself upon the narrow path? 
Do you believe that when you fall off, you must drag yourself back onto that way? Or loved one, do you know that when you fall off that path, that God is there, that God is there to bring you back a second time, just like Jonah? And if we're honest, not just a second time, but a third time and a fourth time and every time until God has brought you all the way home to glory. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, that word commanded Jonah to do the exact same thing that he had commanded him to do the first time. God's word never changes. God's word never changes. And by God's grace, he will be with us and working in us so that we may come to him a second time, a third time. He may come to us a second time, a third time. And and, and push us along the way, pull us along the way, so that we will be obedient to Him. And that is grace, loved ones. It's God's grace to us that He comes to us a second time. And did you also notice that Jonah, when God's Word came to him a second time, Jonah arose, just like chapter 1, and he did the Word of the Lord. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That is his sacred duty. Inseparable grace and sacred duty. I also wonder if you notice there, if you notice there in, in verse 3, Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh, his sacred duty, and he did it according to the word of the Lord. God always keeps his word, even when we don't. God always keeps his word. And so, loved one, be reminded that though this world with devils fill should threaten to undo us. And if you're honest, if you're honest, your heart is the devil sometimes. Your remaining sin keeps you from lovingly obeying God. But though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed His truth, His word, to do what? To triumph through us. To triumph through us, just like he did here with Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Grace upon grace, Christian. And when that grace came to repentant Jonah, Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh and exercised his sacred duty. Don't miss that after the prayer of praise and thanksgiving in chapter 2, Jonah committed himself to obey God's command in chapter 3. In the Christian life, thanksgiving to God, praise to God, precedes our repentant obedience to God. And so, brothers and sisters, our sacred duty of repentant obedience is not some cold and dutiful obedience. No. When we have sinned against God or others, when we have disobeyed God's word, we turn by God's grace from our sin and to our sacred duty with love and with joy, with hope and thanksgiving, with profound humility that God is so kind and God is so gracious and God is so good to forgive us our sin for Jesus' sake. And we do it so that we can't help but come to Him again and again and to do His Word. Sacred duty is not contrary to loving and faithful obedience. In fact, it is the exact end point of God's grace in your life. Some of you, some of you are paralyzed by regret 
Some of you are paralyzed by shame. Some of you are paralyzed by doubt and unbelief because you think that God will not forgive you. You think that God will not welcome you back upon the narrow road. And so you sit there frozen in indecision and inaction. One of the greatest schemes of the devil is to keep us from repentant obedience, to keep us from faithful action by convincing us that God is done with us. Loved ones, loved ones, you need to look Satan in the eye this morning and say, like the Lord Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Or to say, like the the popular meme, not today, Satan. You need to fill your mouth with the words of the godly Puritan Richard Sibbs who said, I have this for a sure foundation for my soul, that there is more mercy in Jesus Christ than sin in me. Our sacred duty is to follow our elder brother, the Lord Jesus, to honor our Father in heaven, all by the help of our great comforter, our great advocate, our great empowerer, the Holy Spirit of God. Repentance is about God's grace and our sacred duty. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. In verses 5 through 9, Uh, we're given a picture of what active repentance looks like in real life. These pagan Ninevites have something to teach Jonah, and they have something to teach us. In particular, they teach us that repentance is always coupled with faith. Repentance is coupled with faith. They believed God, and they turned away from sin. They believed God and they turned away from sin. Faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin. We cannot truly trust God, believe God, unless we turn away from sin. And we cannot truly turn away from sin unless we believe God. Jonah finally makes it to the place that God had originally sent him, to Nineveh. And the Ninevites, they were a fierce people. The Ninevites were a fierce people. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was an avowed enemy of God's people. And so here we start to realize a hint of why Jonah might have fled, why Jonah might have disobeyed God's word. He did not want to go to Nineveh to risk his life for a people who, in his estimation, did not deserve his life. This is, of course, no righteous justification for his disobedience, but it may be a rational justification. How often we rationalize our disobedience to God's word, and we do it in a way that is so unrighteous that it blinds us to the righteousness of God himself. Jonah, sent by God to these people to preach a word of coming judgment. A judgment due to all people who disobey God's commands. Incidentally, I think in the text, uh, when Jonah calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, I don't think that was all that Jonah said. I think that was simply a summary statement of what Jonah preached as he was walking into Nineveh. I think Jonah was doing as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4-2 when he was making an open declaration of the truth. 
He was simply speaking plainly about God's judgment towards sin and of God's way of salvation for sinners. Jonah walked into that great city, a city that was full of commerce and entertainment and power, a city not unlike our great city, focused on the here and the now, on the superficial and the trite. And Jonah engaged the Ninevites with eternal matters, things of eternal judgment, things of eternal life. Jonah's preaching was weighty because reality, apart from God, is weighty. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you, are, you need to know that you are either storing up for yourself a cup of God's wrath that you will never be able to fulfill, or by God's grace, He is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Church of Christ, we will either be a people bogged down in trivial nonsense, or we will be a people who love the open declaration of the truth. A people who make an open declaration of the truth to a lost and dying world. Jonah preached God's word of judgment and repentance, calling the Ninevites from their disobedience and unbelief, from their sin, to trust in the living and true God. And so, friend, I wonder if, if you can understand that your root sin, that your root sin is not some laundry list of sinful actions. We just, we just sung that song, no list of sins I have not done, right? Well, no list of sins you have done is your root sin against God. No, your root sin against God is your proud unbelief. Your proud unbelief. We do not by nature believe, trust God. We are like our first parents, Adam and Eve. We proudly reject God's word. We believe the lies of the world over the truth of God's word. Our fundamental sin is proud unbelief. This is why, this is why we preach. We preach God's word as the sword of the Spirit. To cut to the very heart of the matter. Because God's word, by God's spirit, focused on God's son, is the only means, the only means, by which a dead and unbelieving heart can be made alive. The only means where you can be turned from unbelief to belief in the true and living God. And so we should preach the gospel at all times. And it is always necessary to use words to do so. Because how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone is preaching? Romans 10. And so we preach. And so we preach in the hope that God will overcome our proud unbelief. And so Jonah preached in the hope that God would overcome the Ninevites' proud unbelief. And you know what? the most amazing thing happened. In verse 5, we are told that when Jonah preached God's word plainly, the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God through Jonah, behind Jonah. These Ninevites recognized the voice of the living God. 
when there is an open declaration of the truth, accompanied by the unction of the Holy Spirit, our minds are illuminated in a new way. And this is exactly what happened in Nineveh. Don't you know the Ninevites woke up that morning? No concern for Jonah. Didn't know who Jonah was. Didn't know why this crazy guy was walking into town yelling and screaming. Maybe he wasn't yelling and screaming, I don't know. The Ninevites woke up one morning, assuming, as we all do when we wake up, assuming that all was more or less the same as it has always been. They did not have the spiritual awareness to sense that the cloud of divine judgment was looming over their city and over each one of them. They were, as every one of us is in our natural condition, they were blinded by the God of this world, and their deceitful hearts had led them on the broad way of destruction. And yet, something so seemingly overcomable Something seemingly so difficult through the preaching of Jonah. The simple preaching of Jonah, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, a total reversal took place in Nineveh. They saw the divine judgment over their heads, and they began to cry out like that sinner in Luke, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the true cry of every repentant heart. God be merciful to me. A sinner. And so we see that the very first step in repentance is believing God. It's having faith in God. And you see in these verses that the Ninevites, they believed God. And they not only believed God, but they also turned from their sin. So I think verse 5 is for us a summary of what we read in verses 6 through 9. It's meant to just tell us that in summary fashion, that these Ninevites, at the preaching of Jonah, they believed God and they turned from their sins. And then we read in verse 6, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. I wonder if you noticed in verse 6 that when the word of God reached the king of Nineveh, he did exactly what Jonah did. He arose. He got up. And he did something that Jonah didn't do in chapter 1. He took off his royal robes. He put on a sackcloth and sat in ashes as a sign of humility. When the word of God is the means by which the spirit of God brings unction, brings spiritual action in an individual's heart, they will act. We don't need to orchestrate situations so that a repenting sinner can show forth his repentance. We simply need to make a bold declaration of the truth and the Holy Spirit of God in a repenting heart will make that sinner repent. And here we see this king, the word of the Lord came to him. He, he repents, he takes off his royal robe, he sets in humility before the Lord and the king, he is leading the way for his people in repentance. Jonah's preaching does not only reach down to the lowly of Nineveh. No, his preaching reaches up even to the greatest of Nineveh. And it reminds us that God is no respecter of persons. God judges all and he extends mercy to all, from the least even to the greatest. There is no partiality with God. 
And so young ones, young ones, college students in the room, I wonder if you think, one of my sons, um, one of my sons tends to think if only he could be older, if only he could be like the older kids, if only like he could do the things the older kids, he cannot wait to get older. I keep telling him getting older is not that great and I'm only 38 and some of you are like, amen, it's not that great. But it's not the point of, of, of life, it's not simply to get on the next rung. And so college students, you need to know that getting a degree Getting a great job, getting married, having a wonderful life, which is all good and right. These things will not save you from your sin. If you put off obedience, if you put off righteousness, if you put off holiness, godliness, commitment to the Lord Jesus, until you've reached some ladder on a rung, well, by God's grace, you'll be like this king. And you'll take off your royal robe and you'll sit in sackcloth and ashes and you will say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or you can do it now. You don't have to wait till then. God is no respecter of persons. There is no partiality with God. There is no one who has an inroad to God because of their power or their wealth or their position. You need to know that these things will not save you from the judgment of God. Only a repentant heart by faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of his spirit will bring you into right relationship with God. We are all brought low before the cross of Jesus Christ. We see here in verse 7, the king, the king decreed a time of repentance. Look with me at verse 7. The king makes a proclamation. He publishes throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king of Nineveh declared a national day of repentance because the king of heaven had declared a national day of judgment upon Nineveh. So friends, if you're here this morning and you're not real sure why I'm up here talking about these things, it's because you need to hear the declaration of judgment yourself. You need to hear the call for repentance today. Like the Ninevites of old, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you do not turn from your evil ways, turn from your unbelief and disobedience to God, you will fall under the judgment of God in hell. The wages of sin is death. It is appointed unto man to die once, and then comes the judgment. These are the weightiest matters you can consider in your life. But friend, there is good news to accompany this bad news. And the good news is that God has made satisfaction for sin if only you would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who lived a life of perfect obedience that you can never live and yet bore the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of all who would repent and believe. And this Jesus Christ laid in a tomb, dead, on a Sunday morning like this Sunday morning 
the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave, proving to us all that his life and death are sufficient to save us from God's judgment. And so, friend, salvation belongs to God alone. And he has shown rich mercy by sending us a Savior who is able to save his people from their sins. And so believe on him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What mercy is given to these Ninevites? But friend, what mercy more has been shown to you today? And brothers and sisters in Christ, let this be an encouragement to you in your evangelism, in your witness to the truth of God. Notice that the preached word of God, and let me just specify, when we gather together to hear God's word preached, that is a wonderful, wonderful uh, moment of worship, an act of worship for and before God. But when I say God's preached word, I'm saying anyone in this room who opens God's word one-on-one with an individual and plainly tells them the gospel of Jesus Christ, which if you are a Christian, you have the spirit of God in you. You can do this. Open your Bibles, open your mouths, and tell people about Jesus. This preached word of God, it brought unbelief, brought belief from unbelief. It brought belief from unbelief. Every one of you at one time did not believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at some point, the Holy Spirit of God, using the word of God, brought belief in your heart. Brought belief from unbelief. It brought obedience from disobedience. God's word is sufficient to do God's work by God's spirit. So brothers and sisters, be faithful in your witness to the truth of God. Do not shirk back from telling people about the coming judgment that is due their sin and tell them about the way of escape found only in Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. And brothers and sisters, trust God. Trust God to exercise his mercy just like he did on these Ninevites. May God make us a people known for the open declaration of the truth. And may God make us a people, not just of one-time repenters, but make us a people of repentant faith. May we be like these Ninevites who repent and carry out the works the Lord has called them to. Let us be like repenting Jonah, who repents and carries out the word of the Lord that was given to him. Let us take wisdom from Martin Luther's first of his 95 theses when he nailed them to the door in, at the church in Wittenberg, when he wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be a life of repentance. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, loved ones. Today and every day, until we're with Jesus in glory. I think one interesting thing for us to consider about the King's Declaration here that I think is directly applicable to our day is something of the interaction between public and private, the interaction between individual and corporate repentance. It's instructive for us that the king of Nineveh made a public call for repentance. Surely corporate sins, public sins, demand public and corporate repentance. And surely public acts, public laws, ought to be shaped by righteousness, 
We should seek to bring government and society as a whole under the sway of godly principles. But I wonder if you notice the nuance that a corporate and public call for repentance, which is good and right, is only accomplished in the individual private confession of sin, the turning away, the private repentance, and the believing of God in obedient faith. And so we see here a tension between the seeking of public righteousness that can only truly be accomplished through the private and personal repentance of faith of individuals. And so, loved ones, as we consider how best to bring about righteousness that will exalt our nation, let us never forget that the primary means of public righteousness is the private piety of Christians throughout the land. The primary means of accomplishing corporate justice is by calling is by calling for persons to repent of their sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because God alone is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so at the end of the king's declaration, in verse 9, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish You're going to see this kind of rhetorical statement throughout the Old Testament prophets. Uh, It's not meant to be a cynical question. It's not like he's saying, who knows? Maybe God's going to give up on us, or maybe God's going to burn us, or maybe God's going to relent. That's not the who knows there, right? He's not being cynical. He's not being snarky. No, it's meant to actually be a, a statement of humble faith. Implicit in the question is that it would be just and right for God not to relent. Implicit in the question is it would be just and right if God did not turn and relent from his fierce anger, but instead judged Nineveh in all of his fiery wrath. But also implied in the question, who knows, maybe God will relent, is a a knowledge, is is an appeal to the merciful character of God. God is just and right to judge us for our sin. But who knows? Maybe in our repentant faith, God will show mercy to us. Sinclair Ferguson, a wonderful preacher, pastor, makes this helpful comment on this verse when he says, this was not mature faith. This was not strong faith. This was not a full assurance of faith by any means, but it was faith nonetheless. It had grasped something about Jonah's God even when the message appeared to be one of unmitigated gloom. It had grasped that God was a God who might have mercy. God was a God who might have mercy. And so this rhetorical question is answered for us in verse 10. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is a great assurance that we can all have. 
that if we faithfully repent, that if we have penitent faith, that surely God himself will relent from his right judgment against our sins. This is assurance that we have loved ones that is rooted in the very character of God that was revealed to Moses in Exodus 34. It's the same mercy sung of by the psalmist. It's the mercy relied upon by these Ninevites. It's the rich mercy that Mark read for us from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. God is a God of mercy. And God has proven it to us most clearly in sending forth His only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, to live a life that we can never live, to die a death we all deserve, to rise from the dead to assure us of everlasting life. Loved ones, if even the pagan Ninevites could humbly petition God for mercy, then how much more can we go to the throne of grace in our time of need? You know, I feel like that I've, I feel like I've quoted Romans 8.32 a lot lately. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? I'm not sure why I've been quoting that so much lately. It's kind of been rolling around in my head. But I do think that that verse speaks to God's plan of salvation, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? What assurance... As we discussed last time in chapter 2, God's eternal plan of salvation is, in fact, his eternal plan of salvation. To bring about a people for the glory of Jesus Christ. Even bringing these Ninevites to repentance in chapter 3, it was all according to the word of the Lord. And yet, here in verse 10, it appears, it appears that God changed his mind. I think sometimes we get perplexed by the language of Scripture, like verse 10, where it speaks of God relenting, or some of your translations may even say God repented. We could certainly have a deeper discussion about how these verses play in with God's sovereignty, with God's immutability, His unchangeable character, and things like that, His decree. Those discussions, those questions are are good and right in their own place. But I think the thing to take away from verse 10 is not some philosophical or theological conundrum that might arise in our minds about God's immutability. I think what we are to take away is the witness of the depth of God's mercy. That God's mercy, that he, he would not judge the Ninevites for their sin. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing that these Ninevites, these avowed enemies of God and his people, when they repented and believed God, he will not count their sin against them. He will not judge them. The depth of God's mercy, that he would use even a disobedient prophet like Jonah to preach a message of judgment, bringing about repentance and faith, even from the greatest to the least of the Ninevites, and taking these enemies of God and making them children of God. For all of the conundrums that might arise in verse 10, I actually think verse 10 is a gospel declaration. Because at just the right time, God sent forth an obedient prophet, his own son, 
to die for us while we were enemies of God, Romans 5. And it was the will of the Lord, loved ones, to crush Jesus Christ and not you. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus Christ and not you on that cross. And so when the Ninevite king asks the question, who knows? Well, beloved in Christ, now we know. Now we know that when we turn from our evil ways in repentant faith to God, He will relent so that we may not perish. Because He has turned His fierce anger upon His own Son, who drank the full cup of God's wrath to the uttermost. As a good Father, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. So let me close with these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his own son... How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation with God. Jonah was a repentant prophet. Nineveh was a repenting people. God is a relenting God. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, God, I pray that we would be so deeply encouraged by the reality that even while we were enemies like these Ninevites, Christ died for us. He purchased for us repentance and faith. And by your Holy Spirit, you have granted unto us, your people, these wonderful, inseparable graces and this sacred duty of repenting and believing. And so, God, I pray that we would be a people known for our repentance and our faith. Let us be quick to say, I have sinned and I'm sorry. God, forgive me and use me for your glory. And God, I pray that the plain and open declaration of your truth would bring all of your elect into your kingdom, even right now, God, we pray that you would save your people from their sins and what assurance we have that Jesus Christ is alive and so we know that you will indeed accomplish every bit of your word. And so we pray, God, that we would be about these things until we are with you in glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.